Welcome to another episode of Think Business Futures. On Think Business Futures, we take cutting-edge research, couple it with real-world examples to explore what's actually going on in the business world. I'm David Brown, I'm Associate Dean of External Engagement at the UTS Business School. And I'm Nicole Sutton, Lecturer in Accounting at the UTS Business School. Some of our listeners are probably already aware of our investigative story into the first deposit in Australia's oldest bank. I highly recommend you go and listen to that episode first before you listen to this one. But here's a recap. Our producer Jason and I recently collaborated with a fantastic investigative history podcast called History Lab. We dug into five and a half shelf kilometres of the bank ledgers to find out who made the first deposit and how they got the money. Along the way, we discovered that Australia's early economy was pretty chaotic and the creation of a bank was a really big deal. Trust was a pivotal part of the first bank's operating model. On April 8, 1817, the Bank of New South Wales opened as the first financial institution in the Australian colonies. It was established by Governor Lachlan Macquarie, who advocated its potential to increase the wealth of free settlers and emancipated convicts alike. But when the first customers arrived for the grand opening at 10am in what is now downtown Sydney, they found someone had already made a deposit. Nicole, I love that episode. And I'll tell you one thing I found really interesting. And that was there was no bank nor any official currency in 1817 when the bank was first created. So the Bank of New South Wales had to create trust in the currency and the institution. Yeah, then as now, the customers' banks had to trust that if they put money in the bank, they could get it back at any point in time. Now, banks have been described as merchants of trust, so I thought we'd bring an expert into the studio to explain how banks operate on trust. Harry Shaw is a professor of finance at the UTS Business School and has studied banks at length. Harry, could you explain to us why banks are actually in the business of trust? Yeah, um, let me be a bit broader, I think, uh, why are banks in the business at all? Banks um, provide um, services that are valuable to society. I'll give you a few examples. They uh, pretty much facilitate any form of payment between individuals. They also uh, allow people to manage life cycle effects. What I mean with that is they allow young people uh, to borrow money to fund their studies or fund a first home or first car. And in later stages where you tend to have more money than you spend, they um, provide uh, f- people with uh, saving facilities. And so with that, um, they provide a very essential, intangible infrastructure to a society. And this is where they earn their money with, and, uh, but also this is why we need them. And the trust comes in uh, because we uh, trust that this facility is available at all times. And so with that, uh, I think this uh, trust uh, that uh, the society and individuals put into banks is uh, fairly large. And it's a uh, foundation of uh, banking. Can I pick up on mm. this and just kind of drill down a little bit more about this? Why is it that a loss of trust could be so detrimental to a bank? Uh, I think there are different levels of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, the first uh, level um, regards the availability of services. Uh, But there's more to it. There are particular financial products. Um, We've spoken about deposits, the first deposit in Australia. In in, in that instance, uh, you rely on the repayment of that deposit. But also so uh, institutions are fairly uh, integrated in in the broader economic activity and uh, a major pillar of what we call resilience in the financial market. And um, at any level, um, then 
institutions fail or the trust is broken, it causes damage. And it is uh, the first layer is obviously the loss of the individual. And that, that is a very um, negative outcome. But uh, there are also br broader things at play, um, uh, such as the, uh, the stability of a financial system. And it's, it is um, uh, feedback effects that go beyond the loss of individuals. So those, um, it has the, uh, the, the possibility to create um, larger losses, not, not on a, we call it in finance an idiosyncratic loss, but a large-scale systematic loss that um, involves um, many individuals, um, in the worst case, a whole society or a whole region or the whole world. And so this is some of the things that we saw happening in the global financial crisis. Yes, um, uh, it wasn't uh, the global financial crisis was pretty bad and it was just, uh, systemic, and, uh, but it was isolated in a way uh, to regions. Back to this idea about the fundamental trust depositors have when they put their money into a bank. This relates to this idea about, I've heard this phrase, a run on a bank. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what this is and why it occurs? So um, runs on banks uh, generally occur in countries um, where the government does not back up the banks. I need to put this up front because in Australia, uh, the government through APRA runs what is called the financial claims uh, scheme which is effectively a guarantee of deposits up to 250,000 per account. Similar systems uh, exist in other countries like the US with the um, FDIC um, deposit insurance. Uh, but in countries where this does not exist, and uh, one example would, be, would have been the UK during the global financial crisis, what happens if uh, the people anticipate that a bank is not doing well, immediately they withdraw the funds, and they uh, cause a liquidity squeeze uh, on the, the bank, which has to make uh, pay out the deposits in a very short period of time, and often does not have the uh, liquid assets, that is the cash, to make this payout. And if um, a bank is unable to make the payout, uh, effectively it has to go for bankruptcy. So this is where you and see those long lines of queues exactly. of people so, so, at um, ATMs. It goes very so quickly, uh, similar in, in Greece. Um, it goes very quickly. Um, uh, it can within a matter of half a day by uh, spreading the word of mouth, um, uh, cause uh, all the depositors to withdraw their funds through online um, facilities or uh, personally in the branches. And uh, that can happen within a few hours. Wow. Uh -huh. And so this is what happened. This is one instance as if, if there's a fundamental breakdown in trust by depositors, very quickly this right. could uh, lead to a bank running out of liquid assets. Exactly, exactly. And so with that, the trust is um, reciprocal because... Um, the, the trust uh, is coming from the consumer, but also from the institution. So, and, and you know, the trust from the institution is um, institutions, they do actually fairly good planning on the uh, withdrawal of deposits. And so they, they know exactly that uh, just the lead up to Christmas, people withdraw more of the funds because they need to buy Christmas presents. And, and they know uh, funds are more withdrawn on a Friday and a Saturday as people go out uh, um, to spend. And they basically uh, anticipate these uh, withdrawal patterns. But in a crisis where uh, there's sort of this run on a bank, this does no longer hold and withdrawals uh, exceed by, by, by far uh, the plannings of the institutions. And it's usually then uh, not possible um, for some banks to provide this liquidity needed. Now, as you know, we've been looking at how historically banks, in particular the Bank of New South Wales, which has now become Westpac, tried to create trust 200 years ago. 
And we spoke with a historian, uh, his name was Aaron Graham, who explained some of the context and the environment in which the first bank was formed. As to why a bank was necessary, I think it, it goes back to the situation that he finds himself in in 1810, where there's a great deal of political unrest. And I think he perhaps feels that by making these people shareholders, by giving them a stake in the economy of the colony, this may be a way to diffuse some of that. Now, I want to fast forward to today. How do banks build and maintain trust now? The, it's a good question. So good that I have to think a little while. <laughs> I, I think uh, banks in today's context, they are very different to banks um, 20 years ago. And there's a history that um, um, has to be um, told. Uh, many banks in the past have come out of um, large funds. And what I mean with that is either um, they were established by governments and or by very large, rich individuals. Uh, one of the first banks was actually a privately funded uh, bank. And so what happens is um, banks often are companies that would not exist by themselves. In a free market, it's very fairly, uh, fairly hard to establish a bank. In order to get that trust, what you need is uh, the backing of something like a sovereign. And so this is where in early days uh, countries and governments came in and uh, set up banks. And um, to my knowledge, Westpac is not the only one that has its roots in, in the, um, the government sector. I would argue many of the large Australian banks have the same. There was this episode, um, it might have been in Australia um, 200 years ago, where governments let go and uh, privatized uh, banks and uh, made them uh, companies. Um, and that goes well usually uh, for a couple of years um, until companies... Um, uh, often um, favor uh, short-term profit versus uh, long-term sustainability. And uh, in business uh, cycles, in economic downturns, often that causes troubles um, with various outcomes. Um, and a bank or a run on the bank could be one scenario. But um, you are in situations, because of the importance of banks, where often uh, privately run institutions have to um, then be rescued uh, by the broader society. And... Um, this has not happened in Australia for a long period of time, but it has happened in other um, geographies. And uh, the human uh, societies um, globally have uh, recognized the problem and have established institutions to avoid basically uh, banks running into problems. And banking in particular is one of the few industries that are uh, globally governed because of this. And uh, over the last, in particular over the last 30 to 40 years, um, there has been a number of institutions established. In the olden days, much of that was regulated through the central bank. But in the olden days, in the last 40 years, much of that was shifted to the global level through the Bank of International Settlements in, in, in Basel, Switzerland. That brings us to the next institution. They have founded the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, um, which in, from 1988 on, onwards um, has established bank regulation laws, which are then adopted, adopted by governments globally. And then... Uh, effectively um, limiting institutions in uh, the unregulated uh, course of business. So what it does mean, for instance, in uh, in today's world, that banks have uh, limits, uh, basically floors on, on bank capital ratio. What it effectively does is it um, limits the amount of dividends that can be paid out to shareholders. And also there are numerous, numerous uh, rules and regulations around business conduct. And these rules um, effectively are replacing what governments um, 
in the olden days uh, would have done on their own accounts when uh, banks were under their ownership. And um, what has happened since the global f uh, financial crisis was um, again a move uh, towards more government control where um, globally uh, new roles were crafted um, limiting the activities of, of banks. So basically it's the regulatory environment and regulators that then provide that level of stability that then enables the trust to be mm -hmm. had in an institution right. which is privately owned. Right, and that, that's correct. And um, uh, the whole issue is, is, is very complicated. So in Australia, um, if I just quickly can describe that, we have um, three regulators. We have uh, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission that uh, predominantly regulates the conduct with uh, consumers. Yep, so that's ASIC. Yep. ASIC. And then we have the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority that regulates uh, in particular the uh, resilience of banks um, with a focus on uh, the trust of depositors, that depositors are repaid when they want to be repaid. Mm -hmm. So depositors are a big fan of APRA. Yep. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> and then we have the Reserve Bank of Australia that effectively maintains the financial system stability and um, they basically uh, have a close eye on how banks interact with other institutions in the market space. And uh, together, these um, uh, regulators have different mandates, they have different regulations, but they basically ensure that we can trust banks. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're exploring why trust is so fundamentally important to banks. And here to explain this to us is Harry Shul from the UTS Business School. If you haven't listened to our episode titled The Bank, The Sergeant and His Bonus, we highly recommend you go and do that. It's all about the first deposit into Australia's oldest bank. I promise you'll love it. Dave did. It was pretty awesome. How do you think this issue of trust and the regulatory environment has been impacted by or changed since the Banking Royal Commission? I think the, the level of trust as a whole is something that, that has is earned or is created over the many, many, a long period of time. I'm not sure what a couple of months will change uh, in terms of the level of trust. I think uh, today we still rely on the banks as much as we did before the commission, but it has created awareness. It has created awareness uh, uh, of um, a number of uh, misconduct cases in the banking industry, although these misconduct cases also have to be seen in the uh, volumes um, and numbers of transactions that banks uh, conduct each and every day. To give you a few numbers, the Australian banking system has a approximately size in terms of total assets of $3 trillion Australian dollars. It is three times as large as the market capitalization of the ASX. The number of uh, transactions uh, conducted uh, by institutions uh, servicing um, 20 million, 25 million Australians monthly is, is in the billions. Um, um, there, there's a lot of activity that the banks undertake uh, relative to the uh, cases that, that have been made public uh, and have been reported in the media um, in the last months during the Royal Commission. And um, the banks are working hard uh, to make ensure that these uh, similar cases do not happen in, in the future. For me, 
having listened to you talk about the net of regulation that sits at both a global level and then mm. within Australia, and we have these regulations and these safeguards in place and these rules to ensure that misconduct doesn't occur or that the banks are not taking undue levels of risk and not putting our financial sector into a in a precarious state. Mm. How is it then that we have had instances of misconduct? Uh, and we have had things that have required a royal uh, commission into the banking sector. Yeah, first, I think uh, the banking system, as said, um, is very important to every one of us. And so with that, um, whether it was the royal commission, but always previously we had the Murray inquiry in Australia in 2013, uh, it just shows the importance uh, of that system and can be measured in terms of GDP. Um, the banking system is a major contributor to the Australian uh, output, productivity. And so with that, I think any inquiry or royal commission is, is valuable because it, at the end of the day, um, it, it makes a system, if it is already strong, even stronger. And so one can only welcome that uh, commission. So the, the royal commission has created awareness of these min- misconduct cases. And with that, um, a, a lot of uh, individuals uh, in dealing with the banks, I think they are uh, more careful. And, and they also will consult or are consulting uh, more public sources, things like the internet. They use uh, rate comparison tables uh, more. But it has also created um, a bit of a, a, call it a fear amongst the banking community of uh, doing things wrongly. And so now here's the, uh, there's a negative feedback on our economy as well. And so what the commission has created is a little bit less of a trust from the bank's banker side on, 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 on their customers. And so we've had these um, discussions in relation to um, banks lowering the lending volumes um, made available that then had a negative impact on, on um, for example, housing prices, in, in particular in Sydney and Melbourne. But um, there are other consequences um, also attached to that um, rather than rectifying misconduct cases. And listen to you talk, having understood, and this is a point you made mm-hmm. before, the importance of the trust building that happens from the regulatory point of view, the sense that we have trust in banks because they sit within a strong regulatory environment. Now I understand also why there has been so much heat on the regulators at the commission as well as the banks because it's not just the fact that there's been misconduct but there's been misconduct and they haven't necessarily enforced this and we need strong regulators in order to have trust in those institutions. That is correct. Uh, The government has done a little bit in the last budgets. They have made more resources to regulators available, but this is always relative. Um, More resources than in the prior year have been made available, but some people um, call for a further increase. Mm. Are there any other things that individual banks can do to build the trust um, by members in the in the community. Because, so, for mm. example, if we go back 200 years, uh, one of the really important features was at the Bank of New South Wales that the the clerks they had amazing penmanship because there was the integrity in in their writing spoke to the integrity of the deposits and the fact that you'd be able to see legibly where the deposits were. Sir Alexander Burt looks like an overseer. Again, the penmanship here is amazing. So, as I said earlier, the people were actually employed for their ability to keep really, really neat accounts like this and to be able to add up those incredibly long columns of figures accurately. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Mm. Are there things that individual banks are doing to differentiate themselves or to build trust in themselves as as individual institutions? 
Yeah, so I, I think um, uh, all the institutions work very hard in understanding the customers. Banks have grown over the years in size. And so today, banks service a much larger customer base than they had historically. And so with that, uh, banks are building very hard, call it internal review systems, um, which they um, can roll out over millions of customers and, and accounts. And so these are um, it's an ongoing exercise. And there will be a, a much greater emphasis on um, early warning system, early identification of uh, such misconduct cases, and uh, much greater enforcement of these processes in, internally. Okay, so that kind of takes us to the last question. And you've kind of answered it a little bit, but I just want to deal with this head on. And the question is, so what? Why do we care? Say we, as society, lose faith in the banks and they fail or an individual an individual bank fails. So what? I think individuals, they just, we just need the banks. Most so um, to um, be able to finance uh, our lifestyle at, at times where we do not have money. And um, this inter, it's an intergenerational transfer. And um, without the banks, uh, young people would not be able to, uh, to build their own houses. And I think banks in this intergenerational transfer provide um, the most valuable service to us. There's no alternative to the banking system to date. It's always been argued that the uh, evolution of the internet and uh, fintech companies uh, can provide um, competition, but they are not able to provide that at this stage. And so um, without banks, um, our economy wouldn't function, our, we wouldn't be able to, to do many things that, that, that are dear to, our, to us. So what you're telling us is that life as we know it in a Western capitalist economy, and perhaps more broadly, would not exist without a healthy banking sector. Uh, yeah, there are direct and indirect measures, and uh, you can uh, pin it to a number. 15% of the life you uh, you have uh, get used to it directly would not exist without the banks, and, and uh, there are other feedback effects that would follow if we take the banks away. What do you mean by that, 15%? Mm. That's approximately the importance of the banking system in the economy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you take you take out banks and then immediately 15% gets yes, wiped. Uh, but the other thing, it's interesting, that point. I remember a number of years ago, and I was talking with Nicole about this recently, and Jason actually, um, one of the banks ran this ad on television. It might be 15 years ago mm-hmm. now. I think about it. Time flies. But it was about the role of banks in the importance of your life cycle. And this particular bank mm-hmm. was you know, painting this picture of how they've been there at every step of the way, you know, when you bought your first car, when you bought your first house, and they created this real nostalgic picture of their place in the development of one's life. Now, they got a lot of pushback on it at the time because it's like, well, you're only making money out of this. You're not that important. But as an independent researcher, the point that you're making to us that that message in actual fact is right. The banks are absolutely central to our capacity to build and maintain a life in the kind of economic environment that we operate in currently. Yeah, I mean, uh, banking is an infrastructure. It's important as much as roads and bridges are. It's just the big problem in banking is that we can't touch it. It, it, A lot of that is digital. And uh, many people um, do not appreciate uh, things that are intangible. Yeah, well, you know what, having looked back 200 years to the time 
before there were banks, I have a newfound appreciation for how hard life was without that and how hard it was for the economy to function without them. But And so, yeah, you're right. We do need them. And from what you're saying also, it's not just that we need them, but we also need to trust them so hopefully we can get back to a point if that's been if that's been damaged in recent years hopefully we can get back to a point that we can actually trust banks again harry thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today you have really helped us appreciate the significance importance of banks their operation and also this role of trust in operation thanks so much for talking with us thanks for having me that brings us to the close of this episode of think business futures Our show is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SCR 107.3. Our executive producer is Jason Lequier. Ben Robinson provides additional production support. For more information on Harry's work, you can visit the UTS Business School website. Until next time, 